Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. Today we speak to legendary musician and hip-hop artist Chuck D about the legacy of Muhammad Ali. I got so much trouble on my mind. Refuse to lose. Here's your ticket. Hear the drummer get wicked. Well, he grabbed the mic and he rhymed <laughs> and said what was on his mind and his soul and delivered himself. He didn't wait for the mic to come to him. He, like, grabbed it. I have wrestled with an alligator. I done tussled with a whale. I done handcuffed lightning, throw thunder in jail. That's bad. The essence of hip-hop and rap music is grabbing the mic and rhyming. We're going to go back to our interview with Chuck D in just a moment. Just to let everybody know, we are going to be releasing shows all week about Muhammad Ali, his life, his times, and the real story of what made him so dangerous to the powers that be in this country and beyond. To accomplish this, we're going to be speaking to a remarkable group of people, including Robert Lipsight, who covered Muhammad Ali for over 50 years and wrote his obituary in the New York Times, Bill Siegel, the director of the greatest documentary about the champ, which is called The Trials of Muhammad Ali, and another legend of the 1960s, John Carlos, and many more. All week we'll be releasing these interviews, but first, let's start with the hard rhymer himself, Chuck D., who just announced his new supergroup, Prophets of Rage, with Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine and Be Real from Cypress Hill. We were going to speak to Chuck D anyway because they had just announced their tour, and so we will speak to Chuck D about Prophets of Rage. But before we get to Prophets of Rage, we're going to hear Chuck's remembrances about the influence of Muhammad Ali on his life and music. Well, I was born in 1960, and Muhammad Ali was an Olympic hero in 1960 so just that's significant in itself and um hearing the story about muhammad ali coming back to louisville and also facing segregation after coming back to be an olympic hero and having opportunities kind of close to him in louisville kentucky won the olympic gold medal in rome italy I took my gold medal, thought I'd invented something. I said, man, I know I'm going to get my people freedom there. I'm the champion of the whole world, Olympic champion. I know I can eat downtown now. And I went downtown that day, had my big old medal on and went in a restaurant. So at that time, black things weren't integrated. The black folks couldn't eat downtown. And I went downtown, I sat down, and I said, you know, a cup of coffee, uh, hot dog. He said, the lady said, we don't serve Negroes. <laughs> I'm so mad. I said, I don't eat them either. Just give me a cup of hot dog. I said, I'm the Olympic gold medal. One three days ago, I fought for this country in Rome. I won the gold medal, and I'm going to eat. The manager heard him tell the manager, and she says, he said, well, I'm not the, I'm not the man. Now, he's got to go out. Anyway, I didn't raise money. They put me out. And I had to leave that restaurant in my hometown where I went to church and served in their Christianity and fought and daddy fought in all the wars. Just won the gold medal and couldn't eat downtown. I said, something's wrong. From then on, I've been a Muslim. The 60s were a turbulent period, so obviously it being the first 10 years of my life, everything soaked in, whether it was images of Malcolm X and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. hearing his voice and his speeches, civil rights, assassinations of a Dr. King or Robert Kennedy, being a Negro and then being categorized as colored in the middle of the 60s, 
and black at the end of the 60s. All this was significant, and Muhammad Ali was the thread through all this growing up. I remember sitting around a TV and saying, go Cassius Clay. It was quite significant when, as a youngster, we knew that we couldn't use Cassius Clay anymore. And as a youngster, like, why? Why is he changing his name? Can you do that? Because, you know, you don't know. And then when that was explained to me, it was like, wow. And then I started seeing other athletes change their names, which became a little bit more commonplace in the end of the 60s, whether it was Walt Hazard, Lou Alcindor, Wally Jones. They took on Muslim names as a statement because they wasn't given the microphone to speak as much as their actions were depicted on the court or field. But Muhammad Ali not only made the symbolic gesture that just moved us as a people and as youth, but he also just grabbed the mic mm-hmm. <laughs> and and said what was on his mind and his soul and delivered himself. He didn't wait for the mic to come to him. He like grabbed it and the first thing he thanked was God and he called him Allah. I proved that Allah is God. Elijah Muhammad is a messenger, and I have faith in them. And regardless of the world and the pressure, I made it an easy night because Allah has power of all things. If you believe in him, nothing, even George Fullman, will look like a baby. It wasn't a close fight, was it? It wasn't a close fight. It might have been just as confusing for a six and a seven-year-old year as much as somebody 30, 40, or 50. Because I knew my grandfather... You know, he didn't understand it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it was totally revolutionary. And Muhammad Ali, when you mentioned Muhammad Ali and, and the transformation from Cassius Clay, to know all this by the time I'm 10 years old, to understand it by the time I'm 10 years old, really kind of like pushed us forward into figuring out how arts or sports, how it can always embed itself with movements and activism. So what you're saying is basically the existence of Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali in the first 10 years of your life provided a kind of master class of political education just through his existence and your interaction with him in the culture. And then the omission was just had great magnitude too because it's like Ali, you know, he didn't get hurt he didn't lose, so why has he stopped fighting? And you find out that, oh, no, he stopped fighting because he's a conscientious objector. He's not going to fight because he's not going to go into the military, so he's not going to fight a war. And that was, I mean, to tell somebody six or seven years old, that was not unusual because I had uncles that were coming back with um, Purple Heart in their little trophy cases and we used to take them and put them on our little G.I. Joes. So having uncles that would come back um, from the casualties of war was something that was commonplace. I remember I wrote Black Steel in the Hour of Chaos after I saw my one of my uncles get enlisted with a draft letter to go to the Marines and the report in three weeks in Indochina. So, I mean, that was real. And the fact that here in Muhammad Ali saying, no, he's not going to fight. I understood that. It, it was it was reinforced by my parents. Like, no, you don't want to go fight in a war. 
unless it's really based in, in your beliefs. So you're saying that there is a connection between the existence of Muhammad Ali and the line, they wanted me for their army or whatever, picture me giving a damn, I said never? Of course, and without a doubt, there's no coincidence in that that's actually where it's drawn from. I got a letter from the government the other day. I opened and read it and said they were suckers. They wanted me for their army or whatever. Picture me giving a damn, I said never. Here's a land that never gave a damn about a brother like me and myself because they never did. I wasn't with it, but just that very minute it occurred to me. The suckers had authority. It drew from the fact of, yes, you can go to jail for saying no to a war, but it goes also back to Muhammad Ali's saying that I ain't got no problem with no Viet Cong. Mm. Yeah. My conscience won't let me go shoot my brother or some darker people or some pro-hungry people in the mud for big, powerful America and shoot them for what? They never called me nigger. They never lynched me. They didn't put no dogs on me. They didn't rob me of my nationality, rape and kill my mother and father. Well, I'm going to shoot them for what? How am I going to shoot them? Them little poor little black people, little babies and children and women. How can I shoot them poor people? I would just take me to jail. In the broader sense, Muhammad Ali, public enemy, what was his influence on the music in every respect? Well, he grabbed the mic and he rhymed. <laughs> <laughs> the the essence of hip hop and rap music is grabbing the mic and rhyming. So, and I said, Joe's gonna come out smoking, and I ain't gonna be joking. I'll be pecking and a poking, pouring water on his smoking. Then this might shock and amaze you, but I will destroy Joe Frazier. Some people say you better watch Joe Frazier. He's awful strong. I said, tell him to try band roll on. The full blossom of it all is um, what he said and where he was as far as bold to speak it, no matter what else tried to define him from the outside. And that was revered. And Muhammad Ali, especially in the years where he couldn't fight, eloquently brought across what was happening. And uh, we dug that. I'm saying you talking about me about some draft and all of you white boys are breaking your neck to get to Switzerland and Canada and London. I'm not going to help nobody get something my Negroes don't have. If I'm going to die, I'll die now right here fighting you. If I'm going to die, you my enemy. My enemy is the white people, not Vietcongs or Chinese or Japanese. You my opposer when I want freedom. You my opposer when I want justice. You my opposer when I want equality. You won't even stand up for me in America for my religious beliefs. And you want me to go somewhere and fight, but you won't even stand up for me here at home. And I got to say, the reason why we revere him is because he told these difficult truths. And there is something that feels almost cosmic about the fact that he leaves this earth at a time where you've put together this band whose mission right. seems to be to tell difficult truths. And that, that's right. how I, I've been just looking at all the Prophets of Rage stuff online and listening to you guys speak about why you're doing it. Injustice needs a fist in the face. And in America's greatest hour of need, the Prophets of Rage have come together. Somebody gotta say something. Social media is not enough. It's always the strength of music. Why Prophets of Rage? Why now? Why this project for Chuck D? Collective is always bigger than the individual. And um, you're talking about, you know, myself and Be Real from another group. The collective of these things, which came out of Tom Morello's 
mind after we actually assembled at the Grammys at the end of a broadcast was myself, LL, C Trip, Tom Morello, and Travis Barker. It went really well and it stuck in Tom Morello's head as an idea to collaborate with people that he respected and also a situation that could possibly be a rageified example of of songs that could take on, including rage songs. And I was just like, well, it's a large undertaking because I already have my group. And I really, I said, it should work, but I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a level of magnitude of taking these things on and keeping up with the intensity and veracity of exactly a Rocha. Um, yeah. It would take a lot. And then when the idea of Be Real came about, it just made it all unfoil into a beautiful blossom where first time in my life I can head up as a second MC. <laughs> <laughs> I could do my um, Scotty Pippen thing, <laughs> or I could I could be Clay Thompson. Yeah, and it's a great thing, you know. So you're you're doing your own tracks. I assume there are a couple of Cypress songs in there in terms of what you're doing, and of course Rage's yeah. set list. What? songs are you just grooving on whether it's pe songs that you love doing with morello whether it's cypress songs whether it's rage songs what are the songs now that you are performing with these people that is just getting your blood charged up it's a combination of all because the public enemy and cypress songs are rageified which go beyond mashups they're smashups and um the rage songs that we're getting on is things that's in our wheelhouse that we could go beyond so um bowls on parade and testify and gorilla radio and no brainers but also some of the subtle subtle um powerful records that be real takes on as a lead things like bullet in the head um killing in the name um people in the sun you know great it's a great combination of sights sounds songs story and ideas <laughs> And this is so sick. And you got this tour that just came out. You just announced your tour. And I couldn't help notice that the first tour stop was in Cleveland right about the time of the RNC, the crowning of the Trumpster. I assume that's not a coincidence. I'd like to ask you just to speak about that, please. Well, uh, the first uh, tour stop in Cleveland during the RNC is done with organic intent. I don't think there's anything contrived about this situation anyway. It all came together under the watchful eye of all of our scrutiny of if you know we agree that this is wonderful paper. How does it come together? And that's been more blissful than even the paper. Uh, when it comes down to doing a show, you know, the rehearsals and the practices are very competitive of getting the things done. It's almost like they used to talk about the Chicago Bulls practices and made the games easy. Wow. Who, so, right, you said before about you being Pippin, but who's the Jordan in these practices? Who's the person who's driving everybody to hit that top note? Uh, I would say vocally, definitely be real. And I say musically as a spearhead, Tom Morello. But it's really seriously um, democratic across the board, and that's what allows me to say a good thing at the right time and say a powerful thing at the right time. 
you should tell me if, if I'm wrong about this, but I see some of these interviews with you when you're with Be Real and Morello and Wilk and Comerford. And I, I don't feel like I've seen you look this happy in a while. Like well, you look like you are having a great time doing this. Well, I'm the sixth man. I'm Havlicek, 1965, <laughs> coming off the bench. <laughs> I'm the weakest link out of the six. And if I'm okay. the weakest link, any any performing band has a problem. I'm the weakest link for me. Everybody says, no, no. I'm like, yes, I'm the weakest link. So I'm like I said, I'm coming off the bench and scoring 30. <laughs> <laughs> Havlicek's in the Hall of Fame. So yeah, that, that's, you know. that's some good stuff right there. Oh man. So yo, you think these Cavs can come back and make this a series or is this Golden State going for the big sweep? I would love to see the the state of Ohio, especially North Ohio, which has been always underplayed by the by the way this country works, you know, treating Ohio like a afterthought because of the factories have gone and wherever they've gone and Ohio's been beat up pretty bad, so I'm a big winner, hoping that the city of Cleveland wins with LeBron bringing it back. I guess it's a romantic story, but also I just think that um, sports-wise, come on now, somebody has to feel like Cleveland, like you're feeling for a Cubs fan. Yeah. You know, in the 50s, Cleveland was known as Town. It's hard to believe that now. Yes, the Town, And then you've got, um, but also they have a stand-up guy who has said more things as being, you know, the leader of of his generation in the NBA. And I think LeBron James has, has said way more than the past 20 years of athletes inside the NBA, maybe with the exception of people like Craig Hodges and Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. But as far as superstars? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to go back more than 20 years just for those two. And um, superstars have been silenced uh, by their agents and their managers and the business galoots, as, as we call them. And to see LeBron do commercials to welcome to the Terror Dome, like it gives me a chill. Still drop the load, never question what I am, God knows. Because it's coming from the heart, what I got, better get some get on up, hustler of culture. Yeah, I think he called for that. And, uh, Hey, you know, welcome to the Terradome. Didn't do Mike Tyson wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. When he changed up on it, he lost to Buster, Buster Douglas. So, and um, and Mike Tyson has a Cleveland, Ohio history. So, uh, there's that. You know, he lived there for a while, and and, and so I hope that a Quicken Loans Arena could change the name to the Terradome for those days. Oh. Well, welcome to the Terradome. Last question for any last thoughts on Ali, his legacy that you want to share. Uh, Muhammad Ali was the epitome of an Ursuson, and I, I consider myself an Ursuson. I mean, I've gone 104 out of 215 countries, and it really makes you look at the laws from any one government with a little bit of a side screw face because you know that songs have traveled the world quicker than the laws. Mm. We have to be such a righteous state to embrace that, and the songs are always on tour. So we hold our best and with prayers or whatever that we could join those songs. Wow. Chuck D, and I know how busy you are right now. Thanks so much for the time. Oh, Dave, no problem. (laughs) 
Find out more about Prophets of Rage featuring Be Real, Tom Morello, Rage Against the Machine, and Chuck D at prophetsofrage.com. They just announced their tour. Thank you so much again to Chuck D. Uh, now, so, some of my own choice words about the passing of Muhammad Ali. Look, when I think about Muhammad Ali, the question for me is not the rumbles, it's the reverberations. No doubt the death of Muhammad Ali has already led to retrospectives about his rumbles with Joe Frazier and George Foreman and Sonny Liston, as well as his rumbles against the U.S. government and uh, racism in the United States. But it's the reverberations that we have to understand if we are going to comprehend why Muhammad Ali is so beloved throughout the world and why he is the most important athlete to ever live. And it's these reverberations that are our best defense against real-time efforts to pull out his political teeth and turn him into a harmless icon for mass consumption. When Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. came out against the war in Vietnam in 1967, he was criticized by both the mainstream press and his own liberal advisors, but he felt like he had to do it and justified his courage by saying publicly, Well, it's like Muhammad Ali puts it, we are all black, brown, and poor, victims of the same system of oppression. When Nelson Mandela was imprisoned on Robben Island, he said that Muhammad Ali gave him hope that the walls could come tumbling down. When John Carlos and Tommy Smith raised their fists on the medal stand in Mexico City, one of their demands was to restore Muhammad Ali's title, calling him the warrior saint of the black athletes' revolt. When the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee launched an independent political party in 1965, their slogan underneath a silhouette of a Black Panther was, We are the greatest. They took the Muhammad Ali, I am the greatest, and made it plural. When Billie Jean King aimed to win equal rights for women in sports, Muhammad Ali would say to her, Billie Jean King, you are the queen. And she said this made her feel brave in her own skin and that she was on the right side of history. So the question is why? Why was Ali able to create this kind of radical ripple? Now, the short answer is that he stood up to the United States government and emerged victorious. But it's also more complicated than that. What Muhammad Ali did in a culture that worships sports and violence, as well as a culture that idolizes black athletes while criminalizing black skin, was redefine what it meant to be tough and collectivize the very idea of courage. Through the champ's words on the streets and deeds in the ring, bravery was not only standing up to Sonny Liston, it was speaking truth to power. He was a boxer whose very presence and persona taught a very simple and dangerous lesson. And it's a lesson that turned the toxic masculinity of sports on its head. Real men fight for peace and real women raise their voices and join the fray. Whereas Bryant Gumbel said years ago, Muhammad Ali refused to be afraid And being that way, he gave other people courage. Now, my favorite Ali line is not him saying, rumble, young man, rumble, or float like a butterfly. It's when he was suspended from boxing for refusing to be drafted into the Vietnam War. Ali was attending a rally for fair housing in his hometown of Louisville, where he said, Why should they ask me to put on a uniform and go 10,000 miles from home and drop bombs and bullets on brown people in Vietnam while so-called Negro people in Louisville are treated like dogs and denied simple human rights? 
No, I'm not going 10,000 miles to help murder and burn another poor nation simply to continue the domination of white slave masters of the darker people over the world. This is the day when such evils must come to an end. I've been warned that to take such a stand would cost me millions of dollars, but I've said it once and I'll say it again. The real enemy of my people is here. I will not disgrace my religion, my people, or myself by becoming a tool to enslave those who are fighting for their own justice, freedom, and equality. If I thought the war was going to bring freedom and equality to 22 million of my people, they wouldn't have to draft me. I'd join tomorrow. I have nothing to lose by standing up for my beliefs. So I'll go to jail. So what? We've been in jail for 400 years. End quote. Damn. That's not only an assertion of black power, but a statement of international solidarity, of oppressed people coming together in an act of global resistance. It was a statement that connected wars abroad with the attacks on black, brown, and poor people at home. And it was said from the most hyper-exalted platform our society offered, the platform of being the champ. These views did not only earn him the hatred of the mainstream press and the right wing of this country, it also made him a target of liberals in the media as well as the mainstream civil rights movement who did not like Ali for his membership in the Nation of Islam or opposition to what was President Lyndon Johnson's war in Vietnam. But for an emerging movement that was demanding an end to racism by any means necessary and a very young emerging anti-war struggle, he was a transformative figure. In the mid-60s, the anti-war and anti-racist movements were on parallel tracks. Then you had the heavyweight champ with one foot in each full discussions can and should be written about Muhammad Ali's complexities, his fallout with Malcolm X, his depoliticization in the 1970s, the ways that warmongers attempted to use him like a prop as he suffered in failing health. But the most important part of his legacy is that time in the 1960s when he refused to be afraid. As he said years later, some people thought I was a hero, some people said that what I did was wrong, but everything I did was according to my conscience. I wasn't trying to be a leader, I just wanted to be free. End quote. Not the fight, the reverberations. They are still being felt by a new generation of people learning his real, unvarnished, ragged story. The story of a guy who is a legend, as LeBron James said, for what he did out of the ring not for what he did inside it. So once again, everybody, this is just part one of our Muhammad Ali week. We're going to be releasing interviews all week. I mentioned some of the folks at the top of the show, Bob Lipsight, John Carlos, Bill Siegel. We're also going to be talking to Sharina Med, Tarek Torre, Kavitha Davidson, and Bijan Bain. It's just a terrific group of people, all of whom bring something very distinct to the table on the question of Muhammad Ali, because we're in a battle right now to keep his legacy from being whitewashed. His legacy is just too precious to turn into just another commodity to be bought and sold. And the week is going to culminate this Friday when my producer Dan Bloom and I are going to go to Louisville to bear witness on the processional that's going to be taking place there. They're expecting 500,000 people, and we are going to bear witness to that. We're going to interview people, and we're going to bring you Muhammad Ali's funeral processional to your eardrums next week week 
If you haven't subscribed yet to the Edge of Sports podcast, it's free and you got to do it. You can do it at iTunes. You can do it at Stitcher. You can do it at Google Play Music, any podcast app of choice. This is the week to subscribe to the show because every day, dropping in your phone, dropping in your listening device, is going to be more interviews about the life and legacy of Muhammad Ali and more of my thoughts about his life and legacy. Believe me, I'm not going to be shy with them as the days go forward. You can hear all of our back shows at edgeofsportspodcast.com. If you want to reach me, Dave Zirin, you always can through my Twitter feed at Edge of Sports or contact me at edgeofsports at slate.com. For Dan Bloom, I'm Dave Zirin. We are out of here. Love to the champ. Peace. Okay.